Welcome back to the Handmaid's Podcast. Um, today is actually April 18th we're recording this, so it is exactly seven days from the premiere of season Oh my two. god, I'm so excited. It's almost here. I can't wait. <laughs> um, so we're going to cover seven and eight for you today. I'm here with uh, Abigail again. What up, so guys? Welcome back. And uh, so episode seven is a really unique episode in the canon because it sort of takes a diversion from the narrative of who's telling the story and so the entire episode seven called the other side is focused on uh luke's character who's played by the fabulous ot fag Mm -hmm. such a treasure Mm. (laughs) (laughs) i'm sorry (laughs) such a treasure he is um yes i'm so sorry so so talented in many ways um but it, it was a cute, it, not cute, it was an interesting diversion, because up until now, these previous six episodes, it was entirely um, about the future, and about these new policies, and learning about their world, and the characters, and the development, and you would get little, like, flashbacks here and there, and little, like, snippets of information, you're like, ooh, maybe that's why this is, and maybe that's why this happened, and maybe yeah. that's why she's like this, and you just get little snippets, and it's like tasting an hors d'oeuvre, and then there's nothing left. Yeah. You know? Definitely. Like when you go to a French restaurant, and there's three bites, there you go. That's what you get. <laughs> <laughs> but all of a sudden, they change gear, and now we get an entire entree and dessert of just Luke. Yes. Which is beautiful. Entree and dessert. I love well, that. Well, because I want to eat him. I'm yeah. so sorry. <laughs> I don't blame you. I don't blame you <laughs> um, The interesting start of this first episode is um, very, very beginning of this series season one um before even the beginning credits roll is them in a car and they're on a road and they're being pursued by guardians yeah and then they sort of go into this embankment and we see we follow that june and hannah get captured by the guardians and we don't really know what happens to luke except we hear gunshots so sort of the mystery is right is is he dead or is he not that and was our first of three bites from the yeah. french entree i'm sorry appetizer <laughs> Or d'oeuvres. <laughs> and um, we don't hear about Luke in this present day quote unquote world again till the very end of the previous episode where the um, a spy from the Mexican trade delegation says that uh, he knows Luke is alive. So that's the first tidbit we get that Luke is actually alive. And so June... Um, is asked to send a message if she can. So we don't know what that message says, but we'll get to it. That's basically our second bite, and then exactly. we're done. It was taken away from us. <laughs> it was taken away. <laughs> um, so he gets Luke uh, back to when they were trying to escape, gets captured by the Guardians, um, and he gets shot. So he's like put in this ambulance, which is weird because they like want him to live, I guess is, you know. It either. was a little bit odd. And I suppose I don't understand their thought there well probably because they're gonna try and because you're willing to shoot people to kill them because they're running from you but oh my god he's hurt let's put him in an ambulance i don't understand they're they they must have wanted him for something because i when i was watching it again i was like hmm why would they let him live right like, why it's would just, they try it to save his follow life? their mo yeah so they must want him for definitely something for sure do we know what he did before what his job was no Okay, no so I, I have no idea why they would want to save him. I mean, you're right. There That's has to be a reason, but I don't know. But it's a totally fair point because it didn't dawn upon me until we were just talking about it just, just right. now. Right. But he does get into the ambulance, and then by a stroke of luck, the ambulance, like, 
flips over and they have this huge accident and the guardians that are in that ambulance uh, die. And so he's able to take supplies and sort of run off. And um, the last scene we have of him before it flashes back is we're sort of in this small abandoned town, a la what I like to call Walking Dead, Mm -hmm. you know, like post-apocalyptic, like no one's there anymore. And uh, he's trying to rest. And after that, we do get a flashback of when uh, it's right before season one, whatever happens in the beginning of season one, episode one, is that it's him and June and Hannah in the car and they are planning to escape. Like this right. is the moment that they're doing it. And they mention like having to give Hannah a Benadryl so they don't worry about her acting up or, you know, just like, t- I mean, kids are kids. Keep her asleep. Exactly. Just, you know, to be safe. And, and they were almost concerned about giving her too much. And they're yeah. like, no, it's going to be okay. Um, so just like the nervousness and you see the tanks and the armed guards everywhere. And then, so they meet up with this guy, um, called Mr. Whitford and uh, he is oh, going to yeah. help them uh, escape. And so he has them get into the trunk of the car mm-hmm. with Hannah. And uh, he says he owes uh, June's mother a favor because uh, she performed a vasectomy on him a few years back after they made it illegal. Right. So we get a little bit of tidbit about June's mother, which um, we, I believe, will get a lot of in season two is the things that I'm reading because season two, we're going to visit the colonies. And Ooh. as far as we know from the information in the books, that June's mother is in the colonies. So we might get more June's mother action mm. there, finally meet her, who, um, who she's going to be. So she was sort of in the medical field, June's mother. And so this is how they've made this connection with this man, Mr. Whitford. So they get in, and there's this really nerve-wracking scene where in the oh car. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. And the guardian opens it, and you're like, oh, My entire made. body was just clenched <laughs> with fear. Even though, it, logically, you understand mm-hmm. that she gets out of there, and it's going to be fine, and, like, we hear from Luke later, but none of that matters yeah, right now. In All the you are in the moment is freaking out. Freaking out. <laughs> and the guardian just was like, hmm. Nothing to see here. Looks good to me. (laughs) And no matter what the regime, I was reminded, I was like, people will always find a way. People will always owe each other favors. People will always have other agendas. I mean, I don't know if you've seen the current show iZombie. Have you? I have not. Okay. So it's based off of a relatively new comic book series Mm -hmm. um, about a chick that gets scratched at a party on a boat and becomes like a living zombie. And then the entire city of Seattle gets zombified essentially and there's still some humans inside but they put up like this big wall think like mexico and (laughs) it's a massive wall but there's still people smuggling those in and out that were trapped from their loved ones so like you've got plenty of people outside of this wall that are related people on the inside Mm -hmm. and i mean maybe they're long lost lovers yeah and they couldn't get back in in time Mm -hmm. or there's they're twins or mother and daughter. I don't know. Whatever it is, there's smugglers getting them back in. Oh, and then there's also, this doesn't relate directly, but <laughs> the show is interesting because when you see people coming in, some of them are really sick. Oh, I see. And they're scratched to become zombies and they're no longer sick. They're mm-hmm. perfect. But, I mean, the concept being that no matter what the scenario is, when it's post-apocalyptic, there's always, even if it's not post-apocalyptic, look at our normal world. There's mm-hmm. always going to be smugglers. Yep. There's always going to people be people on both sides that want to help. Mm-hmm. And there's going to be people that are willing to skirt the law. Yeah. Like, it doesn't matter what policy you put in place. This is always going to happen. I think that's a huge te- takeaway of this is that we get a lot of flavor of what the life is at, like for people 
um, on the fringe who are trying to escape. And for people who are safe, like Mr. Whitford and the neighbor they happen to run into with the dog, who right. are obviously, you know, older white men, and they don't seem affected by any of this stuff. And they don't even so, seem to care, really. And so they're doing what they can to help. And so I think that that was an important takeaway of this episode is that there were a lot of helpers in this world. Despite what's going on, there was a lot of bad people. I will say the guy with the dog, I was surprised. Yeah. That was very tense. Every time he showed, he showed up a couple times, and I was mm-hmm. like, oh, shit, what's it going to do? Mm-hmm. And then he eventually came over and told him, you, you got to go. Yeah. So the, you get, I love that we get a lot of um, people who are not of, like, our quote-unquote present-day world characters, you know, right. Serena Joy and Fred and Nick and, and all that stuff. It appears like you're only going to see them one time. They had a speaking role for this one episode, but, yeah. like, it was important development moments for you to understand what's happening yeah and that it, the entire world is not a hundred percent affected by this yeah absolutely um so they're trying to escape and then we leave that and we're back in the quote-unquote um present and uh luke is rescued by strangers who are on their way to the border um, Except they see him in the garb that he was yes. wearing from the ambulance. That's very great. And they were really ready to kill his ass. <laughs> they really, were so ready. And then he's like, I'm you, I promise. And then they're like, explain what you're wearing right now. <laughs> it's this like ragtag group of people. Uh, the leader, Zoe, um, like I guess is a medical professional in some way because knows how to clean him up. Yeah. And then they're also introduced to Christine, Lila, and Peter or an army brat, two strays, a gay, and a nun. <laughs> so I you know, obviously, so much. not gay people. And it's the like nun, the beginning of a joke at the bar. Exactly. And and the nun, we we touched on this in one of the recaps, is that even priests of what we um, think of our mainstream, like Christianity and Judaism and all of that stuff are not acceptable right. in the Gilead world. So things, so people who we, you would think would be safe are totally not right, safe. Right, because they took it out of a, a chapter or a, a book within the Bible. Um, but these people aren't safe because they're living by the entirety mm-hmm. of, you know, the New Testament, the Old Testament, whatever it, you're going with, old or new. Yeah. And that's not acceptable. They're taking this one chapter, leaving everything else yeah. out. Um, and so we have this ragtag group of people. And one of the girls has a really severe PTSD and, like, is mute and doesn't mm-hmm. speak. And that's where uh, the group as a whole. And Luke finally uh, finds out about, like, this term called Red Center. because mm-hmm. So now, like, when Gilead has fallen, and so we assume it's been a little while since, uh, not Gilead, um, the United States, quote-unquote, has there fallen, and Gilead has risen. And so we're probably in the timeline of, like, maybe a few months out from that. And so, Yeah, it seems like just a couple of months, two, yeah. three. Yeah. And so not a lot of super information is being spread around, because obviously right. no internet, which we discovered last time. We just time. did, yes. <laughs> no internet. No internet. So information is really slow to get around. Um, so Luke is just discovering about what these red centers are and that they're curious. gathering women and all that good stuff. Well, yes, he well, is learning about that, that stuff. But it is curious how they shut down the internet mm-hmm. because the way I understand it, that's nearly impossible, mm-hmm. but I did do some research after our last, uh, podcast and oh, I found good. out Tell interestingly me. enough mm-hmm. that the internet has, okay, so it was originally created for those that don't know by scientists 
around the world to work together to get uh, spaceships up into space. And mm-hmm. they needed to figure out, you know, specialties all over the place. You know, how do we train astronauts? How do we make sure they're psychologically available? How do we make sure that they're healthy? How do we make sure that, you know, our quantum mechanics is in order or our uh, physical uh, physics dis- uh, descriptions in math? Like, they, so many different people from all over the world had to work on this. Yeah. What was a good way for all of them to connect? They invented the internet to connect with each other. That's literally what it was invented for. Mm -hmm. And then it grew in late 90s, or, well, yeah, all the 90s, basically, it grew. And then it really blossomed in the early 2000s, and then we had that dot-com bubble, and Mm -hmm. we're dealing with that still. But regardless, um, when it was first created for these scientists, it started with seven locations, and these seven locations um, were, like, hubs and there's seven keys one for each location and there's two people that have a key for each location so technically there's 14 keys instead of in case someone from the first one disappears or dies or whatever um so there's 14 people out there technically that have the ability to shut down the internet if all of them put in their keys and their codes separately at all seven locations i think i've heard something about this but then i was like that's not real no it's real (laughs) homegirl it's real because I, I, I was like, this is so like, weird. Sound is like this still thing. true? Because we still have, you know, yeah. so many people have different locations with mm-hmm. all of their data storage. And That's it's like, true. is this still real? Is this a real thing? Mm-hmm. And the data wouldn't go away in those storage units. It right. just wouldn't be able to be accessible, accessible by anyone else. By. Gotcha. But You'd have to like hardwire in like old school stuff. Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, you know, and there's over 3,500 satellites that are yeah. over the size of a baseball in our atmosphere. So, I mean, yeah. it, it sounds unrealistic to be able to shut it down. But I did look into it, and I have some friends, and it's true. Yeah. That's incredible. It's crazy is what it is. I learned something new today. Yeah. So so amazing. No matter how unrealistic that sounded, (laughs) that they turned off the internet, they did. So even if, so if you had a device, you could access it. It would be very difficult to block. So like, how does North Korea do it? How does North Korea, if someone has a smart device with Wi-Fi, not be able to? Well, so. Well, like, China also has a firewall. You can make a, you can make a firewall. Yeah. But. If you, for when it comes to Wi-Fi, you have to have, um, like, a tower or a location that can then send up and back, uh, send and receive signals from satellites up in the Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. uh, troposphere, I think. Um, Yeah, so you have to have, like, an anchor point. So if you don't have any of those So if they don't have that at all, you can't do it. Right. Okay. Now it makes sense. So, like, even when you make a hotspot on your phone, your phone is connecting to a tower that's connecting to a satellite coming back to you. Right. It's a loop. Yeah, so right. they've disconnected that loop, or they never began with the loop. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure you get high enough, and I'm sure it's accessible for those <laughs> commandos. I'm sure. Well, with months. a satellite telephone, technically you'd be able to communicate, but you wouldn't be able to access um, information the way that we're right. used to accessing information. Right, so telephone... How or we interface with it. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So those satellite telephones are acceptable, but anything past that, you wouldn't reach it. That's so interesting. I learned so many things today. Thank you. You're so welcome. (laughs) (laughs) I hope I've educated some viewers, too. You did. Um, So we find out a lot of things for the first time, or like this group, Luke finds out a lot of things for the first time because they've been sort of cut off. Um, Then they go flashback again, and that's where we run into the hunter and dog, and they tell them that they need to go. And then so they, um, they leave. So he did get her message, right, in this episode? He does. He, the, and so in the present day, when they're trying to escape, so they make it to the shore, yeah. and then that's when 
Luke is like, no, I'm going to go find them. And the leader, Zoe, convinces him, takes him into that church. Mm-hmm. And oh. then wasn't there someone else who arrived and she had to put her information in and then Luke showed up and she was like, wait, why are you here? Oh, that's like um, episode um, 10, I want to say. Oh, my bad. I skipped. No, it's okay. It's all right. Couldn't remember if it was all in this one or what. I know. It's a lot of the a lot of the Canada stuff. And then they ran out of other. coffee at some point. Coffee beans. Just, when was that? It was in one of the episodes. They ran out of coffee. And he was in oh. Canada, and he handed it over to that chick that they oh, crossed yeah, the border yeah. with. That is in this episode. Yeah. So once they cross, well, it, she, they were the only two that made it. Because they get into the boat, and he's like, well, you got to pay for your passage because you only paid for five. Right. And then the guardian showed up and started shooting everybody. So he wasn't even originally supposed to go. Right. he's the one that survived with a girl who has PTSD and doesn't speak. Right. Which is really sad. But we notice that she's speaking. Yeah, in the end. The end. When he just hands her something that apparently isn't coffee. (laughs) I think it's just so, ugh, you know, like, when you think everyone is safe, and you kind of have a happy ending. The producers and writers of the show just pull the rug out from under you. Always. And so they were the only ones that survived off of that bus, sadly. But that's good script writing. Now, I will mm. say, when it comes to that small little snippet of information about having no more coffee beans, mm-hmm. I'm curious if trade was cut off somehow at one point or if they're inaccessible to trade points. We do know that climate is a major factor because okay. we talked about that in A Woman's Place, I believe what that episode was. Yep. Yeah, so there's certain crops, um, things like coffee, bananas, things that take a lot of resources in terms of agriculture that our scientists say like could already be on their way out mm-hmm. um, in you know, 10, 20 years or something like that. So I could see with what we know about that the weather patterns have changed right. that um, it's not... I, I would think unusual that certain crops would just not be feasible or be very inaccessible. So, but yeah. so here's the thing. We also have like seed reserves. Mm-hmm. Um, and if the climate is changing, that would mean that different locations would be potentially more viable for those crops. So I'm curious if it's straight up impossible, mm-hmm. if it stopped in that location and we just haven't pulled out reserves, if someone's commandeering all the reserves, mm-hmm. Um, if we just can't get to them anymore for some reason, or if the complete trade issue or maybe yeah. a policy issue, there's so many different variables that could be affecting this right now. Yeah. And, and I'm curious what it is. I think it's definitely a combination, maybe not definitely, but it m- might probably be a combination of lots of different things because uh, in season two, we are going to get a glimpse of the colony. So we are going to figure out what is actually out there that is dangerous mm-hmm. and what is a f- the the true effect of uh, what the climate has done sort of in the environment. And in the book also, there's mention of radiation. They also mention some radiation in um, the next episode. What, like high levels that can poison you? Yeah. Oh, wow. I think in the book, the canon goes is that you don't want to get sent to the colonies because you're just going to be a worker bee, but the radiation is going to kill you in a year anyway. Oh, wow. It's like Chernobyl then. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Ooh. So we're going to find more about that, I'm sure. Oh, sad. Yeah, I'm excited to learn more about that. Because radiation poisoning is no simple deal. Oh, yeah. It's nasty, and it's harsh. It's like things like you can't like bounce back from yeah, like, no, in your generation. You. Like the, like it destroys not... any seeds you have, and whatever ones you make to produce, they're screwed. Like yeah. <laughs> If you manage within that year, <laughs> that is. Mentioning 
our conversation of coffee because they are having coffee three years later in Canada. So t- some time has passed. Right. So it's th- been three years and uh, he gets called into an appointment with uh, what seems like sort of like a caseworker, maybe with the state. And he says, you know, we have a message from June. And you said three years later? It's three years later. So our oh. present day is three years from when the first escape. Oh, I thought escaped. it was just a couple of months, like two or three months that we were following June. I, it seems like that, but I think when June comes to the Waterfords, it's already been a year she's been a handmaid, and oh. uh, the time before that, she was probably in the Red Center. Okay. So that makes sense. We're about three years in. Okay. Yeah. That checks out. I that's a long time. I'm like, confusing. That's a, that's a long time to live in, in Gilead. That's really be... hard to figure out the timeline. Thank you, yeah. episode seven, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> So they lost the coffee and then they get it back. So mm-hmm. I am curious if it's trade or if they find reserves elsewhere. Yeah. Like, I really want to, it's a small little detail, but I really want to know. <laughs> yeah, I'm like weirdly super interested in trade policies. Okay, thank show. you. I'm not alone. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so we, we finally bring it full circle. And so the note makes it to Luke and it says, I love you so much. Save Hannah. Oh and God. it's it's just like this full circle moment. We're like, okay, now the threads are finally linked all together. Um, the next thread will link in episode seven, which is eight. oh eight, because this was seven. <laughs> Our um, OT Fagbenol Luke um, extravaganza, which I just want to appreciation shout out to the director for a pure like just sixty seconds of him on camera just doing his thing because like as an acting nerd uh <laughs> that's just like a master class what he did in that scene there so that brings us to our next thread we're re-threading back in it's episode eight Woo-hoo. jezebels so jezebels is really important oh um plot point in the book because this is where really? um the commander takes uh june to this like brothel underground club um, but what makes it so important in the book? Uh, because it's a vehicle by which, like, Moira gets reintroduced. Okay. And uh, they use it here in the show sort of as a device um, to get in for... We can see how there's cracks, right? Cracks in the system. Right. And how information is getting in and out. Mm-hmm. And how people are bending and breaking the rules. You allow... Smuggling. What did I say, guys? Yeah. You allow <laughs> for um, a lot of people to break the rules. Mm-hmm. And so in the very beginning, though, this is one of my favorite episodes because we, we had the uh, Luke extravaganza. Now mm. it's, it is the Nick episode, which I appreciate because I'm obsessed with him. And uh, <laughs> so Nick, um, pre-Gilead, is in this career counseling and has this, like, really angsty, very, like, he's really quick to, like, throw a punch. Like, mm-hmm. he has a lot of anger. Ish- he, like, he has a lot going he's on there emotionally. He's got shit going on. He has a lot of stuff going on there emotionally. And so the career counselor, who ends up being Commander Price, um, says, you know, come and, like, you but know. But it was off the record and outside of the building where he was, like, yes. trying to find another job. Yeah, so he's trying to find a job, so we know the economy is bad. There's a lot of people trying to work, and uh, he calls the group. It's called the Sons of Jacob, which I don't believe is in the book. Um, so we go back to Alfred and present day, and um, he does the whole thing with, like, shaving her legs for her, which is really creepy. It was really weird. You know what it reminded me of? Mm. 
Fifty Shades of Grey. Ooh, because I didn't watch this movie. I, I read the book. So <laughs> I, I, I've, I've read, read all some three, of it. I've read even though they're terribly I'm written. I'm not gonna lie to you. I've read. Some, I've, they're okay. written horribly. <laughs> like it is like Twilight worthy of bad writing. <laughs> now I am sorry to any fans that I just offended on both sides of that spectrum, but the writing itself, you you can't deny that the writing itself is bad. The storyline. Potentially, you know what? I'm okay with it. Turned into movies. We're good it. to go. But please don't be offended. Now, the connection I see to um, Fifty Shades of Grey is there's a scene in there where she's like, "We can't have sex," and he's like, "Why?" She's like, "Cause I'm on my period." And he was like, "Okay." And so he just like takes out the tampon and have sex. And then afterwards, I think I remember reading that. Yeah. Afterwards, um, I think it's like a couple scenes later. Um, because she didn't think she was going to be having sex on her period, she had let herself grow out a little bit. And so he started shaving her. Oh, And it turned him on to shave her. So that's what I'm thinking this might be, is it might be like a, I don't know, a preamble for sex for him. Foreplay or something. Definitely what we get about Commander Waterford throughout this whole episode is he really gets off on power Mm -hmm. and being the upper hand. And touch. And, uh, yeah, just the whole situation that he's engineered Mm -hmm. is uh, just him being in charge and giving sort of, like, all this rule-breaking. He's, like, the giver. I forget, like, the term for that, but, like, he's... Um, being so gracious and giving her all these gifts. You know, he's, mm-hmm. she's out of the house and there's the makeup she puts on and the dress and the heels. That he put on her. Yeah. And um, she sort of has to, June has to play this very demure role. and Be a Barbie um, doll. Play really with me. Yeah. Like she, so she has to, a lot to do with like playing along mm-hmm. and her tone of her voice changes, which I think is interesting. And good for her for like keeping up with it and just letting it happen. Because she definitely knows that she can use that to her advantage to get what she wants. And but she, she just didn't know it. how or when, but she right. ended up figuring it out eventually. Right. Um, so again, kudos to her character. Yeah. So we see them in the car, and there's this tense moment with um, Nick and June, because we know that um, at the beginning of this episode, Nick and um, June are still having this affair and that they really do have this affection for each other and that there's something real there for them. Even if it was initiated by the grateful little bitch. Mm-hmm. Miss Serena. <laughs> um, so Serena is like out of the house. She's like visiting her mother somewhere. Um, so I don't even know what she's doing. I just know she's not there. Yeah. It'd be interesting to know more about her too. Um, you know what that would be? Then... So they're in the car and they right. have to pass through certain checkpoints and she has to pretend like, oh, he's taking out the wife. And then there's a certain checkpoint. He says like not even women are allowed past. Mm-hmm. So there's but because counts. he's the commander and blah, blah, blah. He gets away yeah. with shit. And so they get to um, the club and they enter through the back of the building and uh, there's it's a secret brothel slash sex club. And, you know, there's people... Uh, women particularly either half-dressed or you know they're doing lewd acts and 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 just like you know you're like typical what you think of like eyes wide shut kind of situation (laughs) i mean it reminded me of like all the speakeasies back in Mm -hmm. the day like that's basically what it was so commander waterford's definitely brought her here to have sex under this pretense that like oh they're having this affair and that june actually really cares for him which we know is bullshit but (laughs) she's just doing it in order to survive because realistically in her situation what was she gonna do say no and also she knows what you mentioned already that 
she knows she can use it to her advantage. Um, and there at Jezebel's, which is really important, is we see the reappearance of Moira, oh which we thought had escaped. And so we get this whole story from Moira that, you know, she did get on the train to Boston and she went to this family that she knew that um, helped her um, get to what's called like the underground female road mm -hmm. um, to smuggle people into Canada. And um, she gets caught. And so they said that they can go back to the Red Center because she already escaped once and is a corrupting influence. And so they gave her a choice either to go to the colonies or to come to Jezebel's. And we see, like, a really different version of Moira now where she's, like, more defeated, where she's just like, mm, I'm just, you know, food's good, can drink, mm, whatever. So she's, like, lost that sort of fire that is her signature and what has kept June going this entire time. Uh, and it really shocks June to see Moira sort of in this state, to be so defeated and to be so broken. It was pretty sad. Yeah. But, I mean... Even if you look at escorts, mm -hmm. which technically, by law, escorts are legal, what they choose to do on their time is their own choice. Mm -hmm. However, if you're going to be real, you know that they're accepting additional payment or tips, if you want to call them that, to sleep with men. Mm -hmm. And while that might not be happening every time, it's still a thing. And if you talk to those people, there's actually a lot of interesting um, research that's been done on just uh, different kinds of... Uh, interviews and surveys and like psychological tests and it de depends on their atmosphere but for those that are allowed to live wherever they want however they want do whatever they want with their money they're very happy and very content to do that job because they get paid really well yeah sex work is work and right. i think under this pretense it's really more of right. like but then if you look at the prisoner other, yeah. right if you look at the other spectrum those that basically have pimps they're being mm -hmm. controlled they're told where to live they're told how to spend their money and how much is theirs and like they don't have a choice they can't argue blah 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 like they're completely controlled by their quote-unquote boss if you want to even say that lightly um and the way that they react is they're very tense and they're defeated and they're like well i mean i get enough and they're just kind of complacent is mm -hmm. really the term that gets used a lot when we're looking at that specific subset of right. uh, sex workers yeah and it's relevant to what's going on right now definitely it's um really sad to like see her in this state and so she's contending with that but she's also overwhelmingly happy to see a familiar face and to see someone that she knows and that moira is alive and safe so that's um something that's sort of a happy moment like a triumphant moment for her even despite the circumstances and obviously moira is not happy that june is there because she knows what kind of place this is and what kind of danger she's in to to be out and to be there is obviously breaking a ton 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 of rules but the mere fact that they're both alive and they're both talking to each other is a small and significant win even Absolutely. if no matter how small it is it's yeah. still significant the other major plot line in here, we already mentioned Nick and that how he came to be in the uh, employ of Commander Price and Commander Waterford. There's this scene with them in the car and he's driving him around and they're talking about the handmade issue. And what's interesting about that conversation is they they bring up branding, especially um, Commander Waterford. You know, oh, uh, you know, the other guy is like, it's simple. You just, you know, tell him, you know, we need to impregnate them all. And they're like, OK, no one's going to buy that, you know. And Commander Waterford's the one that's like, you know, we'll 
I'll call it like, you know, like a, like a ceremony and make it ceremonial and the wives will be present. So they're discussing how to frame this so that it's going to be palatable um, and fits within the themes of what they are pushing as like their new culture. And Nick was present for that entire di- discussion and Commander Waterford actually asked him, he was like, oh, what do you think? And Nick at the time like didn't, I think, understand the extent of what they were saying. Right. So he was just like, yeah, I mean, you know, you got to do what's, you know, no, no attachments, which I think is his MO. He seems like a very detached person mm-hmm. up until the moment just smart. that he has an affair with June. And this is the first time he really feels strongly. Well, okay. So I wonder if, I guess I don't know how clear it was in that context. Cause I might've missed it. I only watched it once, mm-hmm. but I want to know if the religion influenced that discussion or if that discussion influenced how strongly they were pushing that religious aspect. I think it's a really major tenement of the entire governmental and cultural structure to have the handmaids in an order to procreate. And uh, whether at the outset that they knew they were eventually going to use it as a national resource and for trade, which they probably already They probably did discussed that, but it, but didn't know if it would really go that far. Exactly. And I think the religious aspect um, they set as a precedent, but for the way that I think it's important, like the tenor of how they packaged it, it was like, okay, how do we get the wives on board? We need their support. And so it is this political game within this mini government of, of Gilead that's forming. So no matter what the regime is, no matter what the basis for their laws and their theology and theocracy is that this very simple play of, politics and framing the conversation around something which i think is significant but the fact that they were having the conversation in the first place makes me wonder that you know religion obviously played its part in the basis of this new world or a new community that they're trying to build but you know they didn't have it all figured out yet yeah. and so the discussion even the fact that they brought up you know what if we just told everyone here's your job we are going to impregnate you and that is our sole purpose to have you um everything else is up to the wife's discretion um if they went with that you know, they're they're pulling from the same book saying that you are going to have the child for this person because they can't, but turning it into a ceremony just to please the wives, like, I think they were taking it to a whole new level. I don't know that oh, yeah, they were sure. really letting um, the book uh, that they're, they're using, the religious aspect, drive it all, or if they were... The fact that they were talking about it in the first place makes me mm-hmm. think that it wasn't intent to be surrounding around religion. It was just supposed to be a scapegoat. Yeah. And yeah. now that they're turning it into this big ceremony, just... I feel like they could have found a middle ground, and I think they went to the extreme. Oh, for sure. I think this is definitely a group of people who are not afraid to go to the extreme. Because we do no. find out, yeah, you no. know, the way that they even took over is that they slaughtered Congress, they, the Supreme Court, and the White House. So they're totally fine with committing murder. So I think that well, yeah. them playing they're these... stoning like, people, too. Yeah, these small little really political games is, like, is, is very interesting to, to witness. Like, they're going old-school punishment style with stoning and whipping and all that stuff. Absolutely. Um, and the other important thing in this episode is that Nick is an eye not only for um like yeah he's like commander, a two-timing eye yeah C- commander waterford thinks like he's you know Nick is his ompl- is in his employ which is true but uh commander price is like you know your main duty is to report to us on your own commander and so commander price is sort of like 
the Pope, if you will. Like, mm-hmm. he really truly believes in the moral high ground, and he's going to clean up Gilead, which is interesting because they formed Gilead to clean up the country. Mm-hmm. And now he knows that there's bad people still in Gilead. So he's trying to weed those people out and only have the purely devout. And so we're getting a lot of conflict here because Nick doesn't want June to get in trouble because she's now in Jezebel's. And Nick knows that Commander Price is sort of after Commander Waterford because everybody knows what happened to the first handmaid. Mm -hmm. So there's this really important scene with Rita finding the first handmaid hanging. Right. And Nick was there. And so Nick has feelings for June Mm -hmm. and doesn't want June to be harmed. But he also wants to take down Commander Waterford. And he cannot do both keep her safe internal struggle bring him down he's got this internal struggle with two external forces coming at him i mean what do you do with uh an immovable object when an unstoppable force approaches like this is exactly what's going on inside of him yeah it's gonna be really interesting to see how that plays out because i think um in the um towards the end of the series you really see how he's doing it yeah we really see uh what how far (laughs) the uh commanders commander price especially is willing to go in order to keep everyone in line and to sort of maintain that moral high ground that he is so devoutly yeah but you also you also see where nick's allegiances really lie at the very end that last sentence oh yeah Of that last episode. Oh, my God. I wish I could be here to do that, to talk about that. (laughs) I've got, like, 20 minutes to talk about that one scene. Uh, Oh, it's pretty great. And um, so sorry, guys. I can't be here for that. I just, it it pains me probably more than anyone else. So this is our first uh, traverse to Jezebel's. And so by all outward appearances, it seems a success. They don't get caught. And Serena Joy returns and gives a gift to... And let's talk about the fashion real quick. That fashion at Jezebel's is very 1920s. We're talking speakeasy to the max. Yeah, they definitely drew like a lot of influences from that for sure. Yeah. So we knew that Serena Joy was um, out of town visiting her mother. Now she's back and um, she gives, offered a gift and it's the little music box of Swan mm-hmm. Lake, and there's like a little ballerina in there. Which and I never fully understood. I looked at the significance of that last year, and it's really about this like, um, you know, Swan Lake as a ballet, you know, she feels trapped. And so there's like the white swan and the black swan. Mm-hmm. And so it's sort of like breaking free of that mold when she becomes like the black swan. You know, it seems like she's... Um, evil or whatever but it is like this contrast between like um captivity and like freedom sort of thing okay and uh so offered sort of has this determination after seeing moira again and after everything else that she's witnessed up to this point that she's really going to make an effort going forward to to be a force in like the resistance whatever that may be Mm -hmm. which is what we'll see going forward in episodes nine and ten um so thanks so much we will bring you right back with episodes nine and ten with Kay. thanks so much abigail for joining me today no problem Thank you for listening to The Handmaid's Podcast. My name is Donna Bali and I am your host and producer. Thank you, Abigail Johnson, for being my co-host on this episode. Find us on Facebook at The Handmaid's Podcast. Send us your questions, comments, tell us what you want us to talk about in Season 2. 
Thanks so much.